0: And I want to read verses 1 through 8. Titus 3, 1 through 8. Here are the inerrant word of God. Remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior toward men appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us, through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that having been justified by His grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a faithful saying, and these things I want you to affirm constantly, that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Father, we look to you as we study your word. It is our desire to be sanctified by your truth, and I pray that uh, you would help me to faithfully preach it, and each one of us to be hearers and doers of it. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Maybe seated <clears throat> well, It's one thing to be able to live a godly life in the church. That's chapter one and in the home chapter uh, two. but it's quite another thing to be able to do so in the world. This is the area that Christians tend to fall flat on their face. Uh, they may be uh, trying to live out God's word in the church and in the home. But when they get out there on the golf course or in the workplace or uh, wherever it may be, maybe working in politics, it is so easy to compromise God's Word. And so last week we started to look at the subject of what it means to be godly citizens, and we spent all of our time on just the call uh, to, uh, in verses 1 through 2. And today we're going to be looking at the motives uh, even though you know it would be really nice to have the two parts together, the motivation to work in government needs to be like the motivation for everything else we do. It's the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that we're going to be looking at. And I find it uh, very interesting to see some of the different contexts that Paul puts God's grace. Um, he does it to motivate us in our holiness. He does it to uh, inspire awe and to inspire love within us. But there are other contexts where Paul puts grace in a context that many evangelicals think, huh, what's he talking about grace all of a sudden? He's changing the subject. And that's the case here. Uh, He is saying that when we go out and we be godly citizens, which is verses 1 and 2, we need to make sure that we do it by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, Let me just go ahead and start where we picked up last week, verses 1 and 2. Remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities to obey, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. Now, we saw that was a pretty tall order that he was giving to us, how to be a loyal opposition, a submissive opposition. Uh, earlier he had said, look, if you're converted, no matter what station of life you may be in, whether it's as a, a master or as a slave, as a female, as a male, if you're uh, converted as a magistrate, you need to be seeking to apply God's biblical blueprints to everything that you do. But then he said, if you're going to be effective, you've got to do it using the kind of characteristics that verses 1 and 2 have, not the characteristics that verse 3 has. He's got a a distinction here because there are seven uh, virtues in verses 1 and 2 in contrast to the seven, what's the opposite of virtue, evil, I guess you'd call it, of verse 3. Uh, Christian citizens versus versus non-Christian citizens. So he says, for we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasure, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. Now, there have actually been people who think that Paul misrepresents unbelievers here, and uh, we'll get to that in a little bit, but I want you to notice the word once. Once we were like that. Paul puts himself exactly into the same category that he's describing the non-Christian citizens. And what this means to me is that when you become a Christian, there should be some kind of a change that happens in your life. Uh, He says, once these things characterized your life. Now, certainly you may fall into those once in a while, but there has been a radical change that has come into your life, and no longer can we say that as Christians you are characterized by that lifestyle. Falling into sin, getting up and leaving it again and falling back into it, that's one thing. But if it characterizes your life, if you're comfortable with it, he's, he's going to indicate there's some question as to whether you've actually experienced and tasted of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. You've all read the statistics that indicate that the evangelical church has come to the place actually last year where we have slightly more divorces than unbelievers do. Uh, to me, that's just astonishing and that the statistics have shown that there is not much difference between the evangelical church and the world out there. Well, Paul is going to say that if that's the case, there's something disastrously wrong with the evangelical church. There are people out there who are professors of grace, but they are not possessors of grace. Because if God's grace has come into your life, this word once is going to be true of you. Once you were characterized by that kind of a lifestyle. And so, if these things characterize your life, you need to heed the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians where he says, examine yourself to see if you are in the faith. Uh, Once you are a believer, you're justified by faith alone, grace alone, but you're immediately being sanctified. Sanctification and justification are knit together, and if there is no sanctification, it means there never was any true justification. That's what he's getting at. And so what I want to do is I want to quickly go through this description of the non-Christian citizen and, um, and just apply this to ourselves. First of all, they're called foolish. We need to ask, why would Paul be saying a denigrating thing like that about unbelievers, that they're foolish, does that mean they can't do geometry and statistical analysis as well as Christians do? And the answer is obviously no. I mean, I know a lot of unbelievers that are a lot brighter than I am when it comes to that. What he is saying is that unbelievers and believers are looking at the geometry and the statistical analysis, and they're looking at everything else in an entirely different light. We have an eternal perspective. We relate it to the Lord Jesus Christ And uh, there's a a totally different perspective in which they view life. And God says their view is foolish because the things that they consider to be the most important are actually things they're going to lose. They're never going to be able to take past them, uh, past the grave. And yet I found it interesting that in 1 Corinthians it says, yes, he calls them foolish, but it says they think we're stupid too, that we're foolish. Let me read that. The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. Nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. They think we're foolish, uh, and it could be on many different lines. Um, You know, maybe it's because we're devoting so many years to ministry, and they're thinking, what are you wasting your time doing that for? You know, you only got so many years to live it up. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die, right? And that's the end of it. And we're thinking, no, there is a whole eternity that is before us, And it's foolish to just be living this life in terms of the things that last for for the right now. So they think we're foolish. We think they're foolish. And uh, I love the statement that uh, was given by Jim Elliot in his... uh, He was the guy that got martyred, you know, by the Alka Indians. He said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep. What are the things we cannot keep that we can't take past the grave? Almost everything, Right. I mean, we can can take people with us, you know, we can lay up treasures in heaven, but we cannot take money with us. We can't take our cars and our houses and all of the things that tie up most of our time and that we're so preoccupied with. He says he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. What are the things we cannot lose? Well, when you've laid up treasures in heaven, you'll never lose those. When you've won a person to Christ, you'll never lose that. When you bring your children with you to glory, you'll never lose that. And so, perspective. He says, they're, first of all, foolish. It does make a difference on the question of citizenship. The next word is disobedient. Non-Christian citizens are disobedient to God, and as a result, frequently, they're disobedient to uh, even uh, the man-made uh, laws that are out there. Uh, I, I a couple years ago, read a, an analysis that was done of uh, the congressmen and the senators on how many crimes that they had committed. I was just blown away. I was astonished how many times they not only broke, you know, common laws, but some of these people who had spent time in, uh, had spent time in jail. Um, But, you know, you can have a perfectly upright person who has never broken any man-made law, and God says you're still disobedient because God measures it in terms of his laws, doesn't he? Disobedience to him. And so, this is a contrast to verse 1, where he talked about us being in submission and obeying uh, the laws that God has uh, given and those laws that are are legitimate within government. Uh, And so, he says, don't be surprised when pagans persecute you. He says, they're disobedient to me, and if they hated me, they're going to hate you as well. Next word is deceived. Deceived. Now, this too, I think, should help us to have godly attitudes. You know, if we we're living in Crete and we're being persecuted by these people out there, instead of getting bitter and angry, feeling sorry for them. These, these are the ones really who are deceived. They're the ones who are going to be suffering uh, for all of eternity. We've got to remember that verse 3 begins with a for or a because. It's explaining why we should have the kind of characteristics of verses 1 through 2. He says, well, one of the reasons is they're deceived. Why can you be patient with them? Why can you be loving to them? Because they're deceived. And uh, we should uh, have hearts of compassion that go out to them. The next phrase indicates they are also enslaved. Now, they may not be enslaved uh, in the sense that some of the Cretans were, you know, where they were put into prison and put into chains. But they were enslaved, he says, to something else, serving various lusts and pleasures, and literally it's slaves to various lusts and pleasures, enslaved to them. And you might think that that's a a slight exaggeration because we know plenty of unbelievers who they've never had a drink, they've never had any addiction, and uh, they seem like they're moral, upright people. But William Hendrickson says, some serve one master, some another, but by nature, all are slaves to those terrible drives which they have never learned to control. Uh, Some are enslaved to the drives to be pleased and... uh, That's sometimes the most obvious sins that people are very selfishly pursuing after, but other people are enslaved to a desire to please and to make other people think that they are good, Uh, living by the the fear of men. Some are driven by lust, others by pride. Some are driven by laziness, and others are driven to be workaholics because they want to get more of the things of this world. But the point is, they are all driven by the desires of their flesh until God comes by His grace, breaks them out of that, and gives them the freeing slavery to God, uh, the liberty that comes through uh, His grace. And so, slaves of of, of pleasure. Uh, and then it goes on to say, living in malice and envy. I think envy is uh, one of those uh, very misunderstood stood terms I hear uh, teenagers sometimes using envy and jealousy as if they were synonyms. They are not. They are quite different. Uh, uh, jealousy is a, is a desire and a motivation to protect something that is lawfully yours. Now, there can be sinful jealousy and there is godly jealousy. There is no such thing as uh, godly envy. Uh, envy is always desiring something that you don't have and is not lawfully yours, but you want it anyway. And so he is saying here that this is something that characterizes uh, unbelievers. Um, Let's just give a few examples. Scripture says it's good to want to keep your honor, to keep your reputation, to keep your wife. And if those things are being robbed jealousy will motivate you to guard those things if you did not have jealousy concerning your wife or your husband if that person was uh, involved in adultery or something like that scripture would indicate you don't even have love for that person if there's no jealousy there because in song of solomon it says that jealousy is motivated by a strong love god is jealous of his church Uh, he desires the best for his church on the other hand envy hates to see another person have something that, uh, that they want to have. Now, here's where I would like you to read a book and have it in your library, your lending library for others. It's called Idols for Destruction by Herbert Schlossberg. It's probably one of the best critiques of um, uh, the social areas out there here in America that I've ever read. Idols for Destruction by Herbert Schlossberg. Now, there's a lot of different idols that he mentions, but one of them is envy, what he calls ressentiment, where people go to the extent of saying that if I can't get what I see that other person have that I want, I'm willing to destroy that and destroy the person who has it. Some years ago, I read um, uh, in the newspaper about this lady that had uh, disfigured and scarred another woman's face, and the reason she did that is because she was envious of that woman's beauty. If she can't you know, if I can't be beautiful like that woman, then I'm going to make sure she can't be beautiful. Okay, that's a kind of a ressentiment uh, 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 idea that Herbert Schlossberg talks about. And this is rife in our society. Usually it's not expressed like that. Usually it's expressed in ways of socialism, where if somebody else has more than I have, then I'm envious of that, and I want laws to be passed that will completely obliterate all social distinctions, right? And even if taking away all of the wealth of the, the wealthy people doesn't make any of the poor people any more rich, if they're all still poor, they're willing to do it because envy drives them to destroy the riches that are out there. And he's, he's saying this is something that is everywhere. If you envy the wealth, the beauty, the brains, the power, whatever, of other people, Scripture says you've got a problem because Scripture says God came to save you from that. That should be characterized by once, once I was envious, and every once in a while I fall into it, but I'm very quick to repent of that, you know, and to give it, cast it at the cross of Christ. That should be your testimony. Yes, envy can be present in the Christian life, but it's something that uh, we should flee from. And then the last description is that they are hateful and hating one another. Hateful means to be worthy of hate, to be loathsome. And some translations translate it loathsome and hating one another. Now, again, some people would question, you know, whether others really are, are uh, uh, hateful in that way. Are they really worthy of hate? And do they hate other people? Well, Scripture indicates, yes, they are worthy of hate. Even the most lovable of people out there, if they are not believers, God says, because they are sinners separated from Jesus Christ, they are loathsome. Let me read you some examples. Psalm 11, verse 5. The Lord tests the righteous, but the wicked and the one who loves violence... His soul hates. Psalm 5, verse 5 says to God, you hate all workers of iniquity. And so the real miracle is not that God, uh, you know, the amazing thing is not that God hates uh, anybody. The miracle is that God could love any person in this earth. Now, what about the next part? Haters of one another. Some people say, I know Miss Joan, she doesn't have a mean bone in her body, you know. I know she doesn't hate anybody. Well, you've got to define love and hate according to the scriptural definitions. And scripture says if you are disobeying the laws of God, then there's either lack of love to God or lack of love to to men. And so there's many ways in which we are haters one of another. Let me give you an example. Proverbs 13 verse 24 says, He who spares his rod, okay, that's the spanking stick. He who spares his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him promptly. And people will say, no, get out of here. The reason I don't spank my son is because I love my son so much. And God says, no. If you realize what the discipline was for, it's intended to, uh, to remove bad fruits from this child's life, you would realize it's the loving thing to give it. And one of the things that it spares the child from is hell. It says you shall beat him with a rod and deliver his soul from hell. And so you see this child who's heading toward hell and you see a parent who's utterly unwilling ever to discipline that child. God says he hates that child. Now he may have emotional love to that child, but he says in terms of his actions, it's hatred. Why? Because he's allowing that child to go pell-mell toward hell. He's not doing anything about it. Can you see how the world interprets things differently than we do because we have to have 2020 vision by looking at it through the lenses or the glasses of Scripture. Let me give you a couple of other examples. Um, 1 John 5.3 defines love this way. For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments. So if we're not keeping His commandments, what's the opposite of love? We're hating, right? Christ says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. In fact, I want you to turn with me to uh, Romans chapter 13 because it deals with... Um, second table of the law in terms of our relationships to each other, Romans 13. And a lot of people, they'll look at Romans chapter 12, and, um, you know, that says that we're to not pay back uh, any evil uh, for people who have done evil to us, uh, for vengeance is mine, says the Lord. But chapter 13 deals with the government, and it indicates... How God brings vengeance, it's through the magistrate who is the minister of vengeance. And so we're never allowed to do personal vengeance. We can't get even. Okay, we're supposed to turn the right cheek. That's the ministry of the sword, that's the ministry of the uh, civil government. But if you take a look down at verse 8, he moves on. Again, to talk about our personal relationships, he says, Owe no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet, and if there is any other commandment, are all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of of the law. And so, with a definition like that, you can see how this statement very literally describes all men, women, and children uh, who are outside of Christ. They are loathsome to God, and they are haters of one another. You see it even in children and the way they're mean to each other uh, right from the earliest times. Now, in stark contrast with man's inhumanity to man, and again, everyone engages in this. Some do it in very socially sophisticated ways where they look good, but... It's still in humanity to man. We have this incredible contrast of God's love and kindness. Back again at Titus chapter 3, verse 4. But, here comes the contrast. But, when the kindness and the love of God, our Savior toward man, appeared, and that word appeared is the same one that's used that we looked at in Titus 2, verse 11. It's. Um, Uh, manifesting, bringing to light. It's the concept of light, that light's being turned on. And when Jesus appeared, the lights were turned on because we could see in him what love and what kindness was supposed to look like. Despite the character of man in verse 3, God shed his love on us. Now, that should make us rethink how we respond to people who are haters of others and loathsome. Uh, that we're to love exactly the same way God loved us. So in our social relationships, he says, think about grace. How would grace have us respond to a politician who's voting continually the opposite of us? Yes, we should seek to influence that person, but make sure your motives for involvement in government are, are, are driven by grace. Um, Paul says in Romans 12, Repay no one evil for evil. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And down through the centuries, there have been tons of people who have come to a saving knowledge of the Lord because Christians, in their loyal opposition, were showing forth the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and they were far more effective doing it that way than if they had had the characteristics of verse 3. Unfortunately, many Christians, when they're opposed to the government, all the government officials ever see is, Oh, here's another Christian come to complain. All they hear is complaints from us. They never see love. They never see service. They never see the characteristics of verses 1 through 2. And consequently, what they do is they insulate themselves more and more. We become less and less effective in impacting culture. So that's why he's giving these. Going on, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. It was mercy, sheer mercy, that saved us because none of us can point the finger at others And be self-righteous because, look at these guys, they persecute Christians and whatnot. Paul's just finished saying, such were some of you, you know? He used the word also. We were also in that camp. Uh, Elsewhere, Paul said, there is none righteous. No, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all gone out of the way. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. And so this emphasizes the total sovereign character of God's salvation, Man contributes nothing but unworthiness. Now, there are some who think, well, God's just not fair in electing some to salvation and not electing others to salvation. Uh, if predestination is true, then they they criticize God's fairness. And there was a lady that approached Charles Spurgeon about that. He had just finished preaching on Jacob of I loved and Esau of I hated. And she stormed up there. She was so upset, and she says, that's just not fair. I don't understand that. You know, God uh, hating, that must mean something else. And he said, you know, lady, I think he, he knew her name and said the name, but, you know, lady, I, I, I just don't understand this passage either. It's often troubled me how God could love Jacob. And she was kind of taken aback because she was so focused on how in the world could God hate Esau. And he said, oh, I have no problems with that. When you understand the sinfulness of man, it makes perfect sense that God would hate Esau. How could God love Jacob? That was the thing that puzzled uh, 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 Charles Spurgeon. And so it's pure mercy. There was absolutely nothing within us that merited uh, God's salvation. Now, that gives us hope when we're dealing with our persecutors and we're praying that they will be saved is because there was nothing in us that contributed to salvation. There's nothing in them. God's grace is powerful enough to turn them around, but it's also a motive that helps us to love the unlovable. I heard about a lady that approached Jay Adams one time and was hoping that he would excuse her for wanting to get a divorce because she described how terrible her husband was and just went on and on and on. And, and he says, yeah, that just sounds very, very awful. But uh, he, he told her, you know, what you ought to try to do is try to conquer your husband with love. And he outlined a, a kind of a plan. He says, no, I don't, you don't understand. I want to get a divorce. And uh, I don't have any feelings for him. I've lost all feelings. And he says, well, love is more than just feelings. Love is an action. And as you begin to take the right actions, the love may or may not follow later on. But you're responsible to begin to love him. Well, she just insisted. She wanted to get a divorce. And he says, well, look, if you don't want to relate to him as a husband, at least relate to him as a neighbor. You've got some pretty ordinary neighbors, and yet you do some very nice things to your neighbors. I want you to start doing the same thing to your husband. He's the closest neighbor you got. And she says, I don't want him as a neighbor. And she says, well, if it comes to that, uh, Jay Adams says, uh, God still commands you, love your enemies. If he's your enemy, you can't get out from under it. You're responsible to love. And so the point was, we're to love as God loved us. We were loathsome to God. Apart from seeing us in the Lord Jesus Christ, the only way he could love us is as he saw us in Christ. We need to practice the same thing. We need to say, Lord, I want to minister to this person. He is such an ordinary jerk. Or if he's a Christian that's an ordinary jerk, saying, Lord, I know that you are in this person. You've said that inasmuch as I have done it to one of the least of these, your brethren, I've done it to you. So I have a hard time doing it for him, but I want to do it for you. And so you serve because of Christ who indwells uh, that person. And so if you have never given unconditional love to others, it may be an an indication you have not experienced God's unconditional love yourself. Now, Paul goes even further in the second part of verse 5 to show that absolutely nothing comes from man. Even the faith that receives salvation comes from God. Now, this is so humbling (laughs) to man's pride. We can't take credit for anything. Even the faith in repentance comes from Him. And I want you to notice the order in verses 5 through 7. It's regeneration first. That's verse 5. The renewing of the Holy Spirit, verse 6, leading to justification, verse 7. Before you can have faith, you must be born again. The first work of grace in the human heart is regeneration. So verse 5. Through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Now, some have misinterpreted this and thought that this refers to water baptism, baptismal regeneration, but our our bodies aren't going to get regenerated until the second coming of Christ. Uh, This is referring to inward regeneration by the working of the Holy Spirit, the the washing that's within. And other synonyms for regeneration are new birth, being born again, um, being given a new heart, resurrection, there's a number of different synonyms that are given, and this doctrine of the new birth is, is such an important doctrine to humble the pride of men, give all of the glory to God, and show that salvation is grace and grace alone. We're totally passive in regeneration, and so I want to dwell on this a little bit, and I think I've put into your uh, worship notes an outline here. On one side of the outline is the free offer of the gospel. It's offered freely to all. And then the second column says, but because of men's natures, they cannot receive it. They're going to turn away from it. They're never going to believe in the Lord God. And it uses all the different kinds of offers, those who will come, those who will believe, those who will seek, and yet it shows that they cannot do that. The remedy is until God changes them. On the flip side of that paper, there is a, a chart that shows a number of scriptures and many more could be given that regeneration precedes faith. There are so many evangelicals who are confused on this. The only way we could believe, the only way we could repent is if God opened our heart. And so it talks about Lydia here, whose heart the Lord opened so that she heeded the things which were spoken by Paul. And you can go on down through that chart. I thought it would be helpful if you, if you had that. The heart... Is the central core of man it's the thing that I- issues into our, our conscience our mind our will our emotions and all of those have been so affected by sin that until they are changed they're going to be averse to God they're not going to want to follow after God and so let's go through each each of those the mind is affected because Romans three eleven says there is none who understands doesn't say there's just very few none who understands the will is affected and bound by sin because God says, No man can come to me except the Father who has sent me draws him. John six forty four Ye will not come to me that you might have life. John 5, verse 40. Our emotions are affected. The Bible says men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the life. And so what has to happen before a person is going to be able to believe, he has to be regenerated. In other words, his mind, his will, his emotions need to be so changed by God's grace that where he used to hate God, now he loves God. Where he used to run from God, now he's willing to have his sins exposed to God. And so it's a change that happens, and many times people are not even aware of it until down the road they say, whoa, I can tell when I got changed back then, but I couldn't tell it before, uh, before that time. And so the doctrine of regeneration is a doctrine that removes pride from man, gives God all of the glory. Now, let me give you some of the different uh, terms that are used to illustrate this. Regeneration is called a new creation. Now, unlike making things, which uses stuff to make other stuff, creation is making something out of nothing, okay? So if we're a new creation, that means that there's nothing within us that God works upon. Uh, rather, God, in other words, is not a patchwork where God says, okay, you're mostly good, but this part needs to be changed, and this part needs to be updated. He says, no, it's a heart transplant. I'm going to take out the old heart. I'm going to put in a new heart. It's a totally brand new creation. We contributed nothing. It's also spoken of as a new birth, and if you think of a baby, uh, does a baby, you know, kind of pull his way, swim his way out? I don't think so. That baby's getting pushed, right? The baby's totally passive, and that's the way it is with the new birth. Um, another uh, thing that it's likened to is a resurrection. It says you are raised to new life. Now, think about Lazarus, who was in the tomb there. The way some people treat salvation, you would think, well, Lazarus cooperates a little bit. He has to at least believe that Christ is able to do this, and he moves forward. No, Lazarus couldn't even hear until his ears that were rotting already. They said he stinketh, right? Uh, Until God changed those ears. He couldn't see. He couldn't come forth unless God had already given new life. And then, all of a sudden, he comes walking out. That's the way the new birth is. It's a resurrection. We contribute absolutely nothing. Now, the spirit that gave us that new life continues to work in us the rest of our lives. Now, would you have confidence in a person? You know, if there was somebody, a corpse that was here, been rotting for three days, and he raised it to to life, would you have confidence he could do just about anything in your life that you wanted him to do? Uh, I would have confidence in that. And the same spirit who raised up Jesus from the dead is at work in those who believe, the scripture says. And so we can have confidence, and it says here in verse 6, about that spirit whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. You might say, but I've got so many sins. I've got an abundance of sin. I've got so many problems, addictions, whatever it may be. Well, you've got an abundance of the Holy Spirit that's been poured out in your life as well. He's given to you everything that pertains to life and godliness, And so you need not be discouraged. Now, Jesus did say, without me, you can do nothing. But Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Why? Because the Spirit has been poured out upon us abundantly. So one of the things I recommend that Christians do before they go out into that world, you know, is to pray every single morning for the filling of the Holy Spirit. Lord, I know I'm going to blow it today. If I go out there apart from your Holy Spirit controlling my tongue or controlling my eyes or whatever it may be, pray for the infilling of the Spirit every day. And then finally, having received fully of God's love, having a redemption purchased by Christ, having the Holy Spirit applied in our lives... God then gives us with the Son freely all things. And we see that in the the word heir. That having been justified by grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We're heirs. We have an inheritance in Christ. Ephesians 1.3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now, Having given all of that, can you see why this would have been a great motivation, not only in terms of their own personal growth, but how they related to other citizens who were around them. When they were being persecuted, they could remind themselves, you know, God loved me even when I was persecuting his people. Uh, They could realize that I was a tough nut to crack, and if I'm a tough nut to crack, I shouldn't give up on these people. I'm going to keep praying that God will break through into their lives. God can change anyone who was out there. The rest of the chapter deals with some of the implications of reaching the community, uh, defending the church against attack, loving as Christ uh, loved us. But social action must be based upon the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Otherwise, all we have is a a liberal social action. The two need to be wedded together. We can't bail out from the world. God's called us to transform the world by His grace. But if we have this motive, we've already looked at the call. If we have this motive, God says we're going to be that much more effective. May it be so. Father, thank you. Thank you so much for the grace that you poured out in our lives. You have been so gracious to us. When we think of our hard-heartedness, how slow we are to, to uh, understand your promises. And many times you spoke to your disciples, oh fools and slow of heart to understand. And Father, we see ourselves there many times. And yet you loved us. And you said, having loved your own, you loved them unto the end. Father, thank you. Help us to uh, relate not only to fellow believers with this same kind of love, this same degree of forgiveness, but help us to relate to this society that we desire so much to see transformed and changed. Uh, Help us to relate to them with the motivation, with the empowering that comes uh, from the Holy Spirit and all of the things that came with Christ Jesus. Thank you for the inheritance That we have, in fact, you've said, Father, that the the meek shall inherit the earth. We believe that. Even though it doesn't look like it's happening right now, we believe it by faith, Father. And uh, we want to step into your promises. But, Father, I pray that these motivations would grip our lives and never leave us. We would never grow discouraged. We'd never give up up, knowing that our labors in the Lord are not in vain in the Lord Jesus Christ. Knowing that uh, if we persevere, we will uh, receive the harvest. And we'll give you all the glory and the praise. In Christ's name, amen. Amen.